All right, here's our story this morning. King Nebuchadnezzar is no more. One of his descendants, King Belshazzar, is now ruling over Babylon. And one of the first things that he does is he gives an order that all of the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar plundered from Jerusalem back when he conquered it years before, that all of those goblets be brought to his great banquet hall, And then he and all of his nobles, all of his wives and concubines, and all of the upper crust of Babylon threw a huge party using all of these goblets, and they drank all of their wine and had a huge feast celebrating the gods of Babylon. This is a bad idea, right? It's a bad idea to use the stuff from the Lord's temple to celebrate all these false gods, but this is fairly normal operating procedure for a dictator. Okay, this is Belshazzar displaying his dominance over a conquered people and declaring that the gods of Babylon are much stronger than the gods of Israel. Otherwise, why would we be able to have this huge party using stuff from their temple that we tore down? Obviously, the Babylonian gods are much stronger than the God of Israel. And so while the festivities are going on, while they're eating and drinking and celebrating Babylon's greatness, a hand suddenly appears on the wall opposite the king's throne, and begins writing. Okay, this is literally where we get the phrase, the writing on the wall. Okay, and we use that phrase whenever we say something bad is about to happen. They saw the writing on the wall, right? Whenever all the Falcons saw Tom Brady completing all those passes, we saw the writing on the wall. Okay? We knew where it was going. Okay, so obviously this terrifies the king when he sees this hand just appear and start writing words. So he immediately summons all of his wise men, all the sorcerers and astrologers, all the, the wise men of Babylon to come and read and interpret this writing on the wall. He even promises them fine gold and fine clothing and a promotion if only they can tell him what it means. Okay, now, stop me if you've heard this one before. But none of the king's wise men can interpret the miraculous sign. So finally, the queen mother, possibly Mrs. Nebuchadnezzar, she tells King Belshazzar to call in Daniel. Because if anybody in the entire kingdom of Babylon has proven his ability to interpret miraculous signs, it is Babylon. It is is Daniel. So the king calls in Daniel. And tells him that he will give him all of the gold, all the clothes, and all of the things if only he could interpret this writing on the wall. Okay, we pick up our story, Daniel chapter 5, verse 17. It says, Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Okay, which is a great line, right? In other words, Daniel says, I'll do this, but I'm not doing it for you. Okay, nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him, what it means. Your Majesty, the Most High God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, He humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. 
He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven, until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. Okay, just in case you weren't here last week, that's the story we covered. That's Daniel chapter 4, the story of Nebuchadnezzar losing his mind, living in a field for a period of probably seven years before finally he is restored to his throne. Verse 22, But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is what the inscription means. This is what the inscription was written. Mine, mine, tikal parson. Here's what these words mean. Mine. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tikal. You've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Peris. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So Daniel successfully interprets the writing on the wall. Okay? Something bad is going to happen. That very night, the Medo-Persian armies conquered the city of Babylon. Now, there's some interesting stories from history about how they did this in a way that, that was very miraculous in its nature. Okay, they killed King Belshazzar. And for the next period of history, all the way up until Alexander the Great marched on the world, the empire that controlled everything was Persia. Right now, in, in many ways, I find this story quite repetitive. In other words, as I'm reading this story, I'm thinking, haven't we heard all this before? Okay, yet again, we have an arrogant king humbled by God. Okay, how many times have we seen that in Daniel? Okay, yet again, we see God's servant able to interpret a sign that none of the other wise men could interpret. Okay, yet again, we see God's servant is praised and he's promoted when all he's doing is being faithful to God. Okay, we've seen all of this happen before several times in Daniel, right? You remember this? Four people remember this. Okay. All right, we also saw all of this long ago in the story of Joseph in Egypt, right? You remember when Joseph goes to Pharaoh? He does all of these things, right? We've seen this in the Exodus as well. Okay, Moses and Pharaoh do a lot of this same stuff too. Okay, again, remember that the parallels between the Exodus and the exile are incredibly strong, and that's intentional. How does it work when God redeems his people? It's the same whether it's from Egypt, from Babylon, or for you and me today. Okay? The story of redemption is incredibly um, consistent throughout Scripture. Now, I see this and think, okay, we've read this several times in Daniel already, and maybe I'm wrong, okay, but I'm not sure that I need to preach another sermon on how pride goes before a fall. Okay, those of us who still struggle with pride, we're probably going to keep doing that even if I preach another sermon on it, right? All of you prideful people are like, yeah, we will, that's right. Okay. Okay, and I don't know that we need another lesson on how we should be more like Daniel, who is quietly faithful. Okay, and do we need to hear yet another lesson on how God's in charge of the world no matter who sits on the throne? Okay, hopefully, we get all of this long before we read Daniel chapter 5. 
Okay, so what do we do with this story? How do we read this story in a way that's not simply repeating the same lessons that we've covered for the last few weeks? And so what I want to do this morning, I want you to, to close your eyes for just a minute, if you will, or imagine if you can do so without closing your eyes even. Imagine that you're one of the first readers of Babylon, uh, of Daniel. And I, that's twice today I've said Babylon instead of Daniel. Imagine you're one of the first readers of the book of Daniel. Okay, you are living in the first years of the Persian Empire. Okay, you have witnessed Babylon be displaced by Persia. Okay, you grew up hearing stories from your parents and your grandparents about the glory of the promised land, about what it was like when we lived in a land flowing with milk and honey. You would have grown up as a kid hearing stories about Jerusalem, God's holy city, and what it was like when we went to the temple and worshipped God, our God, with everything so resplendent and all of the regalia and the, and the worship music and all of the pomp and circumstance that went with worshipping our God in God's city, in Jerusalem. We knew we were God's people. We knew God was our God. And one day we are going back home. Okay, but you in your life have probably never seen that. Okay, you're living years later with the promise that you will one day go home, and you're reading this book of Daniel for the very first time, now that Persia is in control of the world, wondering what it's like to transition from the end of the exile back to being God's people in God's promised land. You would have witnessed one of the key turning points in all of history. You would have gone through one of the most intense transitions that the people of God ever endured. I think the main reason that Daniel was written was to help the people of God as they were going through this incredible transition. I think the book of Daniel is written to help God's people whenever we are going through periods of intense transition, helping us to know how do we do that? How do we keep our faith in the God of Israel when everything around us seems to be changing? Okay, here's the point. If you only get one thing this morning, get this point. And that is that in times of transition, we need the certainty of God's presence. Okay, think about your own life. Okay, what are some of the biggest transitions that you've been through? Okay, you ever moved somewhere where you didn't know anybody? You know, I remember when Rachel and I moved here to Georgia just under four years ago. Okay, and it was hard because we didn't know anybody east of the Mississippi. Okay, that's a pretty big transition, right? You take your new baby and your little boy and you move across the country. It's a transition. Okay, what about getting married? Okay, those of you, when you got married, you remember what a transition that was for your life? Now, getting married is a joyful experience. It's great, but there's still some stress, right? There's still some changes that have to be made. Suddenly, you start living with this new person who doesn't do everything right the way you do, right? Okay, what do you mean you don't fold towels like my mama does? Hey, what are some of the other transitions in life? Hey, leaving home for the first time, losing a loved one, having children. Hey, again, having children is a joyful occasion, okay, but you do miss some things from your old life, okay, like sleep and not answering a thousand questions an hour. All right, so what I want you to do, think about a time in your life where you had to transition. Think about a big transition for you. Hey, everyone have one in mind? Thinking about a time that was a major life transition for you? 
Now, what helped you the most as you went through that transition? What was it that enabled you to successfully navigate that transition in your life and get back to some level of normal? I read an article this week from Psychology Today, and they gave advice for what you should do when you go through transitions to make them as, as easy as possible. He had several steps. So the first thing you should do is you should expect to feel depressed and anxious. Okay, with any transition, there is a sense of loss, right? Things aren't going to be the same on the other side of this transition as they were before, which causes us to feel a certain amount of anxiety and depression. Okay, second thing he said is you should acknowledge that you're going through a transition, right? Just being aware of the fact that, hey, this is what I'm doing and this is part of what life is right now is helpful to us. Okay, second thing he said, or third thing he said was think positive uh, and think opportunity, Okay, recognize, yes, there is some loss in my life, but what can be better about my life after this transition? Okay, what are the things that I can change about myself to make myself a better person on the other side of this transition? Okay, he also says, hit the ground running. Okay, in other words, don't wait around for a long time for things to settle down, but instead be proactive about the transition. And the next he says, get support. Okay, in other words, you need to have some friends and people that you can touch base with. And finally, he says, have a realistic time frame and expectations. Okay, it takes time before you reach again some level of normal and of comfort with your life. Okay, I thought those were pretty good. I thought those were moderately helpful. Okay, even in a positive transition, there's still things that you're losing. There's still ways that we need to adjust. Okay, one of the things that I thought was interesting, though, about the transition from the Jews from Babylonian exile to living back in the promised land was the large number who never made the transition. Okay, something we don't read a whole lot about in Scripture is that a large number of the Jews decided to live in Babylon, even though they had permission to go home back to Judea. Why? Because the thought of making that transition was just too hard. They'd made lives for themselves in Babylon, everything was in Babylon, and they just stayed in Babylon rather than make the transition. The end of the exile for God's people is one of the biggest transitions God's people would ever have to make. Again, I think it is very interesting that more of your Bible is written surrounding the events of exile and return than any other time of history in the world. Okay, more pages of your Bible are dedicated to this event than any other event. Okay, so, as helpful as I think the advice is in psychology today, I think a big part of the reason that Daniel ever wrote the book of Daniel is that he is teaching his countrymen that even though they are going through the biggest transition of their lives, the most important things in their lives have not changed and will not change. You want to successfully navigate through transitions in your life? Realize that God does not change and that He is there with you. You want to successfully navigate all the things that change in your life. Know what your anchors are. Know what your touch points are. And your touch point is your relationship with God Almighty. I think the story in Daniel chapter 5 is a great example of how the more things change, the more they stay the same. Okay? We have a new king, but he's still kind of just the same old king. right? We have the same politics, just with a different empire. Okay? God's servant does well in spite of all the chaos around him. 
Okay, so chances are that in your life right now, you are either getting ready for a period of transition, you're in a period of transition, or you're coming out of a period of transition. And I guarantee you that what will help us get through transitions better than anything is the certainty of God's presence. That work? All right. All right at another level, uh, I think this story is important um, because it emphasizes the foolishness in ignoring God's story. And this fits in with point number one, because one of the best ways that we can continue to acknowledge God's presence is by remembering His story. Usually when we get in trouble, especially during transition periods in life, is we get in trouble because we forget God's story. All right, so uh, I went on the internet earlier this week and found several foolish decisions from history that I would like to share with you this morning, okay? And again, these are all from the internet, so they must be true. All right, first foolish decision from history. When J.K. Rowling uh, had her manuscript of Harry Potter, she tried to sell it to different publishers, and 12 publishers in Great Britain rejected her manuscript before one finally said, okay, we'll publish it. Okay, that is now worth over a billion, with a B, dollars. All right, second Foolish decision from history. There was a man named James Howells, and in 2009, he bought 7,500 bitcoins, which back in 2009, you could buy 7,500 bitcoins for $27. Okay, he stored them all on a hard drive, which he put in a desk. Later, he threw the desk away before he took the hard drive out of the desk, which would be okay, except now, in 2017, 7,500 bitcoins are worth $8.5 million. That's a foolish decision. All right, back in 1999, two men, one Larry Page, one Sergev Bryan, uh, tried and failed to sell their little search engine company to the CEO of a dot-com company named Excite. Okay, there's a man named George Bell who heard their pitch and decided that he didn't want to buy their little search engine because there's no money in search engines. And so he turned down for $750,000, because that was just way too much money, for him to buy this little company called Google which today, of course, is the most valuable country in, or the most valuable company in the entire world, uh, worth just shy of $600 billion. It's a dumb decision. Okay? Another dumb decision from history. In 1914, there was a British soldier named Henry Tandy, and he was marching through a field. He came across an injured and unarmed German lance corporal in a ditch but he could not bring himself to shoot an unarmored, an unarmed opponent because he thought of himself as a man of honor. And so Mr. Tandy allowed Adolf Hitler to live and get back to the German lines. All right, going back a little further. In the 13th century, Genghis Khan wanted to open diplomatic relations with his neighboring empire in Persia. And the Shah that was there and received this Mongol diplomat uh, didn't really like what was going on over Mongolia, didn't want to have relations with Genghis, didn't think he was that big of a deal. And so he beheaded the diplomat and sent his head back to Genghis. This angered Genghis, who was not known for his patience. So he immediately dispatched 200,000 warriors who completely destroyed that particular Persian empire that you've never heard of. Dumb decision. 
Here's another dumb decision. Two years ago in France, the government of France spent $15 billion on a new fleet of trains because they wanted to update their railroad system. And after they bought all of their new trains, they discovered that the trains were just a little bit too wide to fit into the 1,300 station platforms that they have around their country. It cost them 50 million euros to fix the issue. I don't know what 50 million euros is in real money, but that's a lot of money. All right, one more. Back in 1962, there was a a record label called DECA, and they wanted to sign an up-and-coming band. They knew rock and roll was becoming really a big thing in the early 60s, and they wanted to get in on it. And so they auditioned two young bands at their studios in London and awarded the winner with a label. The winner of their contest was Brian Poole and the, I don't even know what the next word is, Tremolos? Anyone know that band? You ever heard of them? Yeah, I'd never heard of them before. Okay, Tim knows them because he's pretty old. All right. Dad told you about it, okay. Of course, the band they rejected, you may have heard from. Um, it was this little four-piece outfit from Liverpool. And if you're interested in music, you may have heard of the Beatles before. Okay. Why do I tell you all these stories? Right, a lot of people have made a lot of mistakes in history. Undoubtedly, you can think back through your own life and think about some of the mistakes that you've made, right? You can think about some of the missed opportunities, some of the times you could have done something and you didn't, and you go back and you wish you had. I think most of us wish we'd have bought stock in you know, Google when it first was on, right? That kind of thing. Okay, we can think back through some of the mistakes that we have made. I have a great uncle who actually had a buddy come up to him and say, hey, I've got an idea for a new kind of doll that we can sell to little girls, and you can get in on it for like $2,000. And my great uncle said, I have no interest in putting $2,000 into a doll that's not a baby doll. Instead, it's a doll of a full-sized woman that you can dress up and change her outfits. That will never sell. And so he could have had 50% of Barbie, but he decided against it, right? Many of us have made lots of mistakes. Many of us have done lots of stupid things. Undoubtedly, we could all take turns telling about our own mistakes and missed opportunities. And yet the worst mistake ever made is when we see exactly how God acts, and yet we don't learn anything from it. The worst mistake that you and I make is when we look at the story of God and then we ignore it. I want you to notice again verse 22. Because Daniel says to Belshazzar, he says, You, Belshazzar, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, have not humbled yourself even though you knew the story of how God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar knew the stories of Daniel. He knew that Nebuchadnezzar on multiple occasions had been forced to recognize the one true God of Israel. He knew all of this and yet he didn't learn from it. The most foolish mistake you or I can ever make is when we know the story of God, but we choose to ignore it. My final question for us this morning is, are we listening to God's story? Do we live as if this kingdom is the only kingdom that matters? Do we spend our money as if God is the most important thing? Do we spend our time as if God's kingdom is more important than all of the extracurriculars that we just have to be involved in? 
Okay, do we talk to our friends and neighbors as if this gospel story is the only story they really need to hear? Are we truly listening to God's story? Because if we are, then it doesn't matter what transitions happen in life. It doesn't matter who's on the throne. It doesn't matter whether we live here or somewhere else. It doesn't matter who comes and goes in our life. None of the rest of that matters if we truly are paying attention to the story of God Almighty. I think that's the message of Daniel. All right, at this point in our service, we're going to sing a few verses of an invitation song. During the singing of this song, I will be down front. One of our shepherds will be down front. If you have a prayer request or a need, anything you'd like to talk to us about, this song is a time for us as a church to be here for you. Um, And so before we sing that song, though, I'd like to close this with a word of blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace.